This is Carrie from Wrap Your Head Around Silks. You are listening to the Expecting Aerialist podcast. <laughs> I'm so excited to have Teresa Licardio on the pod today. Teresa is a professional swimmer. She was in La Rev and O in Las Vegas for Cirque du Soleil. She has swam competitively as a synchronized swimmer. And I met her because we were in aerial silks class together many years ago. She's now based in Las Vegas and also works as an occupational therapist. Here's my interview with Teresa. Thanks, Teresa, for coming on the pod today. Say hi, Teresa. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored to be here today. She's currently nursing a broken foot. I thought maybe we'd start with the most recent Sure. Vegas is opening back up and O recently went back into rehearsal. And unfortunately, Teresa got hurt pretty early on in the rehearsal process. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah. Um, so I'd been back about three weeks and we were just having a normal training. Um, we were switching a little bit of the end of an act. So uh, I went off the float we were on onto part of the stage that was only a foot underwater um, that I could not see. I had kind of foggy goggles on and I don't normally go off the stage at that point. So I didn't know that there was a stage there. So I landed on the top of my foot. Then I continued on a little bit in rehearsal because I was kind of in denial. And then I looked at my foot and it was swollen. So I went and had an x-ray and I broke base of my fifth metatarsal. So could have been a lot worse, but unfortunately I missed the opening of the show and I'm out now for probably... I'm guessing till mid-August, I'll be back. Man, it always sucks to like get really excited to go back to work or to start a job or anything and then to get injured pretty soon after. It just kind of sucks. Yeah, even though it's not the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was really excited to... There was a lot of exciting energy about the show opening again. And I went to watch the dress rehearsal, which was... They had two dress rehearsals before they opened where they invited audience to come. Um, and the, just the energy of the audience was so exciting. And I was sad that I couldn't be in the water and experience that. But it was really fun also to be an audience member and experience how excited everyone was to watch live performance again. When I first saw O, Cirque du Soleil's O, I was already an aerialist, but very, very early on. And I was like a kid in a candy store. At the beginning, they, they have this moment where the entire red curtain gets sucked into the back. And that's how it starts. And I still remember that moment like it was yesterday. It's a gorgeous show. Yes. Yeah. So I first saw it when I was 15 or 16. I think it was the first or second year they'd been open. And one, my coach from growing up, she was one of the original cast members. Um, so I went to go watch her in it. And I just, it stuck in my head up until my early 30s when I decided to audition. So um, yeah, it definitely has a lot of moments that stick with people. Oh, Yeah. It's it's such an it's such an incredible spectacle. Um, so Teresa actually did La Rev, and then now she's in. Oh, she did. How long did you do La Rev? I was there about four and a half years. Okay, and before that, you were swimming competitively as a I, synchronized swimmer. Yes, I had retired for a lot of years, and then I went back. Um, I still go to a competition. It's called Masters Competition. So. It's mostly for people that have retired, but um, it starts when you're 20, you can start to go to master's and then it goes up until people, I've seen people in their 90s uh, compete solos or in teams. So it's, it's pretty inspiring, but 
I go to nationals every year for that. Um, so I started doing that again while I was living in Los Angeles, uh, and I was in graduate school and doing some stuff like that. And then kind of being back in that world reminded me that I really wanted to perform. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I'm assuming you swam as a kid. Yeah. I started when I was 11. Uh, I was lucky. I, when I was like 11 that summer, I just remember telling my mom, I want to be a synchronized swimmer. I don't know how I knew anything about it, but I was lucky that I live really close to one of the best clubs in the country. So we were about 30 minutes from that club. So I did a summer program and I just was kind of a natural. Um, I was always in the water when I was a kid. And so as soon as I took the summer program, I fell in love with the sport and I did that all through high school. Uh, and then I retired to go to college and that's when I didn't swim for close to a 10 year period. Oh, wow. Kind of picked it up again in my late twenties. I realized, oh, I really miss swimming. I really miss like this skill that is kind of a unique skill that I had. Like it was a, a large part of my identity that I never really let go of, but I wasn't participating in it. So um, I decided to try and pick it back up and go to this master's competition. Um, so it was pretty nerve wracking being out of the sport for 10 years and then going back. I'd kind of just been coaching myself at the public pool and showed up at this competition on my own with no coach. And it was, it was a little stressful, but I've come a long way since then. Let me ask you, okay, so I've said on this podcast many times, I am, I'm like, I would die in water. Like, <laughs> I can't swim yeah. at all. I can, I can like doggy paddle. But uh -huh. when I was a kid, I would like, you know how kids play in the pool. I would try to like go upside down, do a handstand or like take one, like just turn under the water and it would just go straight up my nose. And I was like, this is terrible. Why would anybody do this? Yeah. <laughs> so you're obviously a fish, a fish in water. Um, tell me what it's like. Well, you're, you also train Ariel and that's how we know each other. Yeah. Tell me what it's like to do this type of synchronized and sharp, super sharp movement and then also your swimming. Can you talk about the technique that you do underneath the water and how somehow somebody like me could understand it, knowing what I know? Obviously, I'm a dancer and an aerialist, but yeah. Do they compare to each other at all? Is it a completely different part of the brain? I feel like they do relate. I think when I started to learn aerial, I hadn't fully gone back into deciding to compete again. But I, I feel like my training in aerial kind of reminded me like, oh, this is a similar... A sim it's a similar physical challenge. Like you're trying to learn a new skill and then you get over that hump and it's, you know, you feel really good. Like it's kind of addicting in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like the physical challenge was very similar. Like I knew how to have a challenge and then be able to work hard at it and physically overcome it. Um, but I'm not sure. Yeah. The actual skills of being in the water. It's, it's funny. Cause I feel like I could teach, I feel like I could teach a beginning aerialist how to climb and do the basic skills, but I, I honestly feel totally at a loss on how I would even teach a beginning swimmer to do some of the synchro skills just because I learned so young. So for me, it's hard, it's harder for me to break down that because I learned it so young. So it's just so second nature for me when I'm in the water. Mm -hmm. I get it. Um, but we learn, we learn, we have like very specific, we call it sculling. So we have different kinds of skulls that we learn how to do. Um, and when we're upright, we do something called egg beater, which is what water polo players do. Um, so those are kind of like our base skills that we do to okay. stay up. And then we also have the aspect of having to hold our breath, which we do a lot of kind of breath training. Um, and now as an adult, when you look back and you're like, why did I choose a sport where you have to hold your breath? It's terrible. 
Um, well, but, yes, because usually movement <laughs> and breath go together. Yeah. So I, I think if you talk to almost any synchronized swimmer later in life, they're like, why did I choose this sport? But there's the other thing about synchronized swimming that is different is it's really a strongly a team sport. Right. Um, which is, I think, different than aerial. I think, you know, you can get into environments, performance environments where you're with other people. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of it too, you kind of do solo. So I feel like in my aerial training, I always really thrived when I was either working on a performance with a group of people or, um, you know, collaborating with someone. I, I really think that's part of what I really loved about the sport of synchronized swimming was having that really close team teamwork aspect, which I feel like I get now again, being at the, sh- at the show, um, cause we are a close knit group and we have to work really closely together versus the solo acts that, you know, they mostly do their training on their own and, yeah. um, you know, they have to rely on the riggers and stuff, but as far as being really in sync with some of the other performers, they don't have to do as much as we do. Totally. I, can we go back to this holding your breath while doing movement thing? Y- yeah. Okay. So you have a nose clip on, I'm assuming. Yes. Um, there are some swimmers that swim without nose clips. Like my duet partner, I swim with, she doesn't swim with a nose clip. Is that, what's that like? I think it's terrible, but (laughs) (laughs) some people can close their nose with their top lip. And I can't really, really, yeah, I can't really do that, but I can for a short period of time. I can, like I've, I've swam routines before without a nose clip. Like if I've lost it during competition, there's no time to put a new one on. So you just keep going. So I can kind of close my nose off a little bit on my own for a little bit. But eventually when I start to run out of air, then the water starts to go up. But the way my duet partner explains it, she just, once you let the water flow in a little bit and you have the like initial burning sensation, then it goes away. (laughs) So yeah, she just, she, for competition, she swims without a nose clip. I think she feels like she can breathe better upright without one on. It's so funny because I hear you say that and it sounds crazy. Yeah. But then I say that all the time, like, well, your nerves will just get used to it and it's not going to hurt ever again. Like, yeah, you know, I say this about silks all the time, but talking about a different sport, I'm like, why would anybody do that? Oh, wait, we do that all the time. So yes, <laughs> I kind of understand. But if you're always breathing in and out of your mouth and then also smiling because you're performing when your face is out of the water. Yeah. So that breath is like a huge, that breath training is probably like, would you say it's like 25% of it? Probably more than that. I, I feel like the cardio aspect and really get, like I do a lot before I compete. I do a lot of laps where I hold my breath and get, try to get my breath like used to it. Like I, I call it warming up my lungs when I, when I tell my fiance that he's like, what does that even mean? Huh. But like to us in the swim world and like everyone would know what you mean, but it, it really is once you like warm up your lungs, it's easier to hold your breath. So I, I do a lot of that before I compete or before I'm getting ready to do like anything all the way through. Um, we don't have to do as much of that at the show because most of the time we do have uh, scuba underwater. Okay. But we do hold our breath a fair amount in the show, but any long periods of breath holding, we have air. Um, so this is mostly kind of when I go to competition, I really try to work up my endurance as far as doing underwater laps where I hold my breath with like sprinting back just to kind of get my body more used to being deprived of air. So I'm not really trained up for a full act right now because I've just been teaching so much, but yeah, two days ago in class, there weren't very many students and I, and I ran the end of the number with them, you know, just like I gave them a sequence and I did it. And first was, I was really glad I could get through it with no problem, but at the three quarter mark, I was like, breathing. Yeah. Not hard, but like, you know, I was trying to catch my breath. Yeah. So you're three quarters of the way through your synchro act. Yes. And if you hit that moment, how do you deal with it? Because 
it's so different. There's sometimes I go to competition, you're just so in the moment, you don't realize till you're done, like how exhausted you are. Uh huh. But I've definitely had, it's a mind game. I've definitely had competitions where I, I dive in and halfway through the routine, like all I can think is, wow, this is not going well. <laughs> so I really, it's really a mind game. I think you have to be like, you're really shift to like, uh, for now as an adult, I mean, the pressures of the kid competing were very different, but now as an adult, I do it for myself and for fun and for exercise. So when I get in that mindset, I really have to switch it to remind myself, like you're here, you're performing for the judges. Like you got to enjoy this moment. You're like it's only a couple minutes long. So trying to get myself out of that kind of frantic, mm-hmm. like, oh, this is terrible feeling and focusing more on right. kind of getting in that state of like flow and enjoying what I'm doing. Um, I find when I really focus maybe specifically on my corrections or the moves I'm doing that I don't think so much about how hard it is. I mean, I think that's, that's very transferable to, to Ariel. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, you know, kind of the difference between when you're training your routine just on your own and you're like, Oh, this move is terrible. Versus then when you have <laughs> an audience in front of you and you have like kind of the adrenaline and you're just in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Um, <laughs> Just thinking about myself in the water, almost dying, (laughs) trying to do anything that you do. The other thing that comes to mind from a, just a body perspective, you guys have to have like major active flexibility. The sport has definitely changed since I was a kid. I mean, you always had to be flexible, but now the elite swimmers are, they're almost like rhythmic gymnasts flexible. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm like flexible compared to the elite synchronized swimmers now. They're they're really exceptionally flexible. Right. Because at least when we're in the air and your feet are in footlocks, you can like press into your split beyond where, where it would be if you were just like in it with no force. Yes. But there's no, there's no force in the water. And so what it is, it, it is what it is. And I, I really did. I really depend on gravity for my flexibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And pulling, pulling things like pulling my foot and like yanking it a little bit. So that's what I think about when I watch, when I watch that, I'm like, wow, it takes this breath technique plus this like dance type of technique plus this active flexibility. And then, and then you have to, you know, swim. It's a lot lot to think about. Definitely. So the other thing that I'm really curious about personally is what that stage is like underneath the water. So if you could talk about, O and LaRev, I'm imagining like, gates and and levers and and tons of moving parts down there yes and then you've got your breathers so you have your scuba divers yeah how does it work down there and how do you get from in the water to off stage and back from off stage to in the water to come out of the water yeah if you could tell us those those secrets i would love it sure yeah um so both stages both the little rev stage and o stage are similar in some senses in that they both have moving lifts. So they're big hydraulic lifts that can go all the way up and be a full stage with no water. Um, or they can like, Oh, all the lifts can go down. It can just be a full pool. Um, so I think, Oh, is a, like maybe a 1.5 million gallon pool. Wow. Um, but, and it can, at some point, it, all the lifts can come up and be a full stage. You want like even no waters underneath it. So yeah, those stages are always moving, which is kind of how I broke my foot is I didn't know one of the lifts was up because it's not always there. So at O, we have air stations, like they're kind of just hanging, uh, we call them hookahs. They're like hanging air stations around the front part of the pool. 
The rest of the time, if we have a really long act, we have like a really long scuba line that the divers set up for us. And then um, we kind of just drop it to the bottom of the pool when we have to hop out and the divers carry it away for us. Um, at Larev, we had a similar thing where we have to kind of unclip from our air to hop out on the stage at the end. Um, sometimes girls would forget to unclip their belt, like when we come back from vacation and then they'd be stuck underwater and have to be swum out by the scuba diver because they didn't exit properly. So <laughs> that would kind of be a funny thing that would happen. Um, and we always have safety divers under there the whole time. Um, they kind of watch, make sure we're not in distress. Everything's okay. Uh, but there are times when, so the, the big hydraulic lifts, if you like, for some reason were to end up under it and then it went down, it would crush you. So that part's dangerous, but most of the lifts have a little safety stop underneath them. So if it hits something, it automatically stops just for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, let me try to think of that. So for at Larev, we would enter most of the time, the swimmers, we would enter the water from backstage and we had to swim through an underwater tunnel where they okay. had, what's yep. this tunnel? What's this tunnel like? Because I am like, I'm like imagining like a sewer tunnel, like dark, and narrow. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's a little narrow. It's probably like your wing, like maybe five feet wide. Okay. And I remember when I first went to Larev, I was very scared to swim through the tunnel for the first time. But then at the end, it's, it's not that scary. It's, I don't know how long it would be. Maybe it's about 20 feet long. Okay. And you have, there's air stations along if you really need air. And there's a scuba diver that always waits at the end of a tunnel and makes sure you exit properly. It's like, you're never going to run out of air and be floating, dying in the tunnel. I mean, yeah, I hope not. Right. Um, so yeah, we had three underwater tunnels at La Rev and we, the swimmers pretty much always entered from the underwater tunnel. We had two acts we entered on stage. And the interesting thing is if you're pregnant, you can't, you're not supposed to be on scuba. So once in Weheim, we'd have a performer, a synchronous swimmer that was pregnant. Um, they would really only have two acts they could do because they couldn't enter through the underwater tunnel and, you know, in case they would need air. Um, and oh, at, wow. o, okay. at O, it's the same thing. Except we don't have an underwater tunnel. We just, it's more of like a traditional theater. So we just enter from the sides, which is kind of just water. Um, and the interesting thing about O is that the pregnancy track is like pretty hard because they can't use the air. So most of the acts, they just kind of enter a little bit late and then they hold their breath the whole time. So I've heard from our swimmers that have been pregnant that that track is like pretty difficult for them compared to the huh. where they just did two acts and it was like a fairly easy track while you were pregnant. And how far in pregnancy have you seen friends actually perform? Usually they performed about like three or four months, but Okay. Um, we had a swimmer at O that I think she went to five or six months cause she didn't show. Usually I think it's kind of up to, how they're feeling. And also once the artistic team thinks they're showing a little too much. Yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of between those two factors. Um, but they're, they're pretty respectful. We've had girls that as soon as they knew they were pregnant, they um, maybe had some risk factors as far as still being so active. So um, they would go out right away. So yeah, it, it really depends, but generally probably around like four, three to four months. Yeah. I, um, I wonder what that would feel like to swim that track and be so nauseous. But yeah, I don't know. Either. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a lot to think about. But if you if that's what you do, for me, for sure, doing aerial in my first trimester was way easier than dancing because dancing, I didn't have my equilibrium on my feet yeah. as much as I used to. And I, mm-hmm. I was doing a show that I was in heels. So oh, wow. that and then plus the lights, I was like, I'm going to fall. But- 
having my hands on a silk and then doing a couple things, totally easy compared. So I might think about the swimming stuff and be like, oh, that sounds hard. But wait, I would rather do aerial than dance when I was pregnant. So yeah, that, interesting. And that might not make sense to people to either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I have more questions. Yeah. So, so backstage, like, does it, do you enter like a spa type of room and then you swim into a tunnel? Like, what are these backstage portals like? I don't know. It's like, to me, it's like Narnia. Yeah, I know. It's hard. <laughs> and it's hard. To, I remember coming to the show. It's hard to comprehend what it could look like back there. Um, yeah. And then you see it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's what it would look like. So, at, oh, since it's like pretty much a traditional theater, like as soon as you kind of go behind where the side curtains are, there's, we call it the aqua coulisse. So there's a little water area that's like shallower so, and steps. So we walk in the steps into this little aqua coulisse and we kind of wait behind the curtain. Okay. And then we either, sometimes we enter underwater and we swim to like a air station or sometimes we just kind of swim on or enter the stage from another place. Um, but that's usually where we kind of exit as well. Um, and then Lareva was a little harder to comprehend because the audience was above that area and it was a round stage. So yeah. we had the kind of three aqua coulisse areas where then we'd enter kind of this little, yeah, kind of like a spa area with that would have the tunnel there. And then we'd enter the tunnel to swim onto stage. And do you have inner ear? Like, how are you listening to the music? Is it just on a loudspeakers? Like, are you just listen, hearing what the audience is hearing? Um, no, they have underwater speakers that are okay. all around the stage. Okay. Um, so yeah, we can hear pretty well under there. Okay. I'm like trying to put it together for myself. Yes. Yeah. So we ha- we use the same kind of underwater speakers we use in competition. So when we do compete, um, we have an underwater speaker that's playing our music so we can hear pretty well. Okay. Okay. So music getting in off stage. And then I saw the rev, I know the rev changed choreography uh, like a million times. So I don't know what version that I saw. It was probably back in like 2009, uh-huh. but there was this moment where this big, tree looking thing just comes out and then it's also raining or something, or maybe I made that part up. Yeah, no, no, you know, you, <laughs> yeah, that happens kind of towards the the very first act of the show actually. Oh, okay. I yeah. don't, obviously don't remember it that yeah. well, but what is it like to do a show every single night where you're just like, just super wet and in the water? Is it just so, are you just so used to it by now? Cause you're getting rained on. Like, can you see anything if you look up? Like I'm trying to think of me trying to do this track. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I've only really been in a big production as a swimmer like this. Like I've only as in these big productions, I've only been in the Rev and O. So I sometimes wonder, I wonder what it's like to get home from work and not have been soaking wet all night. <laughs> so <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it gets cold. It, it definitely gets cold. The, the water is like when you tell people the water temperature, they're like, Oh, that sounds lovely. Um, but over the course of a three hour night where you're in and out, in and out, it, it gets cold. Um, so yeah, usually the, they keep the pool around. Well, they claim they keep it at like 88 or 89. I think sometimes it gets down to 87. Um, so, you know, that sounds warm compared to what you, they keep a public pool at like 80 degrees, but it's still colder than your body temperature. So by the time you're going in and out of the water all night and backstage can be pretty drafty because you yeah. know, it has to stay cool for the audience. So we're usually pretty cold by the end of the night, but um, we have like hot, there used to be hot tubs around. I don't know if there are going back. I haven't seen them yet, 
that um, sometimes performers would get in, but I would actually never, the one time I got in, it was a huge mistake because then I went on stage and I was shivering and shaking the whole time. (laughs) Oh, like, is I've that why divers get into the little jacuzzi on the, yeah. on the side? Is that yeah. why? Uh huh. Because when you're in the water, I don't remember the statistics, but when your whole body's in the water, you lose heat way faster than when you're in the air. Oh yeah. So even though it's, you know, 88 degrees, our body temperature is like 98. So it's still like 10 degrees cooler. So you lose uh, heat really quickly in the water. Okay. And what's up with the little towel that everybody has? Like, is it soaking wet towel? The diver, And everybody's for, holding one? Yeah, the divers. Oh, for divers? Um, they're normally, we call them like chamois. So they're like squeegee towels like you would use to wipe your car off at the car wash. So you like squeeze it out. We don't use those that much as, swimmer, as synchro swimmers. But, but, but what's the point of it? I think it's to dry off like all the dripping water. So I, like, I kind of do this at the show. Like sometimes we get out and we just stay in our cold costumes. And so I I wipe off as much water on me as I can. So I'm not as cold. Okay. So I I think that's why, or maybe, I don't know. I don't know that many divers, but maybe so they don't want to be slippery when they go back up too. So are you in one costume a night or are you changing? Um, at, oh, we have two costumes and then we have three different headpieces. So at La Rev, we had a lot more costumes, and so we never were sitting in a wet costume. So I don't feel like I really got that cold at La Rev because I was always taking my wet costume off and sitting in a dry costume till the next act. But mm-hmm. at all, we just have two. So we do sit in a wet costume a lot. So I spend a lot of my night when I'm not in the pool with like towels wrapped all around me. <laughs> and are you wearing makeup? Yes. Oh my God. I love how Teresa, you were like, what is there to talk about? I'm literally microwing your entire <laughs> night. Cause I'm curious. So you're wearing makeup and how does it stay on your face? Uh, we use like a fixing powder. Yeah. like a big powder. We just put on all at the very end and then you look like really white until you get in the water once and it kind of washes off some, but it's, and then it's, it's and then your makeup well. stays on. Oh yeah. It pretty much stays. I have to redo my lipstick in between shows, but other than that, everything pretty much stays on. Right. Cause for both, you're sometimes doing two shows a night most of the time, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh man. I, you know, I never did a cert contract cause I kind of got into this late and that seems so like so much work to me. <laughs> two shows a night, <laughs> five days a week. It I, seems like yeah. so much. Yeah. I think you get used to it. It was like when we went last year before COVID, we had had a lot of, cause we went to a seven day week schedule. And so we had some days that were just one show a night, but um, by the time you're there and you spend all this time warming up your body and doing your makeup and all that, you're like, I might as well just do the second show. Cause yeah, you spend all this true. time doing all that and driving to work that you're like, I'd rather just stay and get paid for a second show. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. It's a completely different performer life than, than LA, you know, you oh, yeah. here for a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a different, like the, I think when I lived in LA, I, I also had a, performance group I started with my friends, um, for swimming. So, you know, you work hard on something and then you do one show and then, you know, you're not, it's not the repetitive, same repetitive aspect. So it's definitely for me, I, I really like the repetitive aspect. I like that. I'm not nervous every night. Like when I just Mm -hmm. do one show, I'm so nervous that sometimes I can't enjoy it where, you know, when you do the repetitive shows over and over, you start to notice little things like you get to look at the audience a little more. Um, I also, I think I just like having a routine like that. And, uh, so yeah, I don't remind the repetitive. I know there are artists that come, you know, and they do like a year contract and then they're just like, I can't do another show of the same thing and they need to move on. Mm-hmm. 
I think probably as swimmers, we're used to having to do a significant amount of repetitive stuff. So it's probably not as hard for us, but, um, yeah, I, I like the aspect. I, I like that. It's not like a one time. Oh, if you mess up like too bad, that was your one chance to perform it type of thing. Like I have lots of chances to try different things and stuff. Yeah. And if you perform something enough, you get to really, I don't know if the words master it, but you know, you get to polish and, and find the nuances. And I think that's fun too. I've yeah. been in a couple shows where LA is different. So I would be in a show where it would be every Friday night for like months and months and months. And that was the same type of feel for me where I got to yeah. like do these routines over and over. And it started to feel like the, the, the show that I was in right before I got pregnant, it felt like that we were, you know, it's the type where there's, it's in a club. So we were on bars and like hanging from like poles and, and I look back and the, the other girls even said to me, they're like, how do we not die in that show? It looks so like you step one foot out and you're like, you would have fallen, but no one fell. You know, we just got so used to whatever the parameters were. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, and it felt really safe. But then after, after you're out of that, you're like, whoa, that was a little bit like in the lights and like they're flashing, you know, it feels like a strobe, like trauma, heart attack while you're, while you're on stage. Um, okay. So Teresa, what to you, for you, what's, what's your most, what's your favorite thing about being in a show like, Oh, or La Rev? Like, what is the thing that makes it exciting for you? Oh, oh gosh. There's so many things. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think deep down I had had this dream that I wanted to either be in the rev or I wanted to be an O since I was, you know, since I was like 16 and saw O. So I think there's, there's a little bit of me, like almost every night that remembers that, or, you know, like sometimes there's this one act where we stand behind a curtain on the stage and then the curtain opens and we dive in and like, we have a little time we're waiting there. And almost every night I perform, I think to myself, Oh my gosh, I'm standing on the O stage. Like, so there's a little bit of that that I, I get every night I get to be on these stages, which I think is really cool. Like I just remember that, you know, this, you know, I'm, I'm older. I, I had this dream for a really long time that I forgot about for a while and I followed other dreams and just knowing that I was able to accomplish this thing that I had in the back of my mind for so long. Um, I, I guess I feel like I just have a lot of pride being there. Um, but other than that, I think I just love the team aspect. I love having, you know, people to swim with. I think it's hard as a synchronized swimmer when you don't have anyone else to synchronize with, like, mm. so just to swim on your own is not as fun. Um, so I, I know there was a moment in La Rev too, where we did an act where we were all underwater and sometimes I'd be kind of in the back facing everyone else. And I just, Oh, same thing. I'd have this moment where I'd look at everyone else underwater and we're all doing the same like weird skull with our arms. And I'm like, what a bizarre sport this is. And then I'd look around <laughs> and be like, but look at all these cool people I have to do this like sport with. So for me, it's really just being part of the cast. I think I, I just really enjoy that. I know this last year, um, not having that and kind of participating in my other career, I kind of didn't have anything artistic and didn't have a community like that to be part of. And I, I do feel like I was a little um, just not not as happy or not myself that I didn't have that to participate in. Yeah, I think we all felt that way. Let's talk about your pandemic experience. Were you... Were you able to get into a pool during that time? Um, we had, so when COVID first started and the show first closed, like we went to work that night and they called us in before the show and they said, you know, effective after tonight, you guys are all laid off. And that I think, I think there were like two days later, all the public pools closed. 
Um, so I didn't swim for about six weeks. I started running. There were some cool trails behind my house where I live, but I'm definitely not really a runner. So it was definitely hard for my body to not be in the water. And then I went and spent a month at my parents' house and they had a backyard pool. So I swam there and it felt great. And by the time I got back to Vegas, the pools were still closed, but I had a group of friends that were going to swim at the lake here. So we would bike down to the lake and we'd swim in the lake and then bike back up the hill. <laughs> so we did that for a little while. Um, and then thankfully the pools opened. but yeah, it was, it was hard to not have a place to swim. I mean, I know kind of everyone felt that not having, you know, if you didn't have your own aerial rig, same thing. Like there's just not, there's not anything else that compares to being in the water. Like same with being in the air. Like there's nothing else that compares to being able to like hang upside down and kind of get your body in that position. Yeah. And be, you know, just be on your rig. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing that's comparable. And I was kind of adjacent to a lot of Cirque performers without being a performer myself for that company. And when everybody got straight up laid off, like what were the emotions that were happening in, in you? Because watching it happen, I was like, uh, wait, like not even a, like just straight laid off, not even, okay, we're just going to be off for a while. Like that was shocking to me. Yeah. I mean, I think we technically were furloughed at first. Um, but, and then in July is when I found out I was like permanently laid off. So I think when it first happened is kind of like, you know, they kind of said, well, hopefully we're just going to be closed the month and then come back. You know, like no one really knew what was happening and like this was going to go on over a year. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I have another career as an occupational therapist. So I knew I would be okay. Um, like financially, I knew it was only a matter of time before I could find another job if I needed, but I kind of stuck it out until I found out I was permanently laid off. And then as soon as I found out I was permanently laid off in July, then I started applying to full-time jobs as a therapist. Um, and I luckily found one really quick, but yeah, it was when COVID first started and we were laid off at Cirque and then I worked a little bit at my part-time job as a therapist and then all elective surgeries and everything were stopped as well at the hospital. So then they weren't using the part-time staff either. So I never thought I'd go from having multiple jobs and multiple careers to like really not having work. Um, yeah, was pretty yeah. crazy. So I, I, you know, I think I knew in the back of my head, I, I could find a job pretty quickly once things got a little more under control. So I tried to just embrace that. I live my life in a kind of crazy hectic way. So I'm going to try to embrace this time off, like let my body rest and enjoy some time with family. Like I drove home to California and with my dogs and I stayed a month at my parents' house. Um, so yeah, I tried to just embrace those moments. Like, you know, when else in life am I going to be able to spend a whole month with my parents that are, you know, getting older and my brother yep. and my niece and nephew. And so, um, and then I started working full time as a therapist and then that also got really rough. <laughs> I did that for about six months and I realized that I am completely burnt out and I cannot do this full time. So I went back down to being part time, uh, as a therapist and that made a huge difference for me. Wow. Okay. I want to ask you about being an occupational therapist. So you went into this second dream, like this separate dream and you, what was your thought process going into school and what you wanted that career to be? What were you thinking about? Um, so I, ever since I was probably in high school, I have always had an interest in health and you know, wanting to work with people and helping them live, you know, a more healthy life. I didn't know for a long time what aspect that'd be in. I used to think I wanted to be a registered dietitian. So all through college, 
I volunteered with the registered dietitian on campus and I do like projects with her. Um, and then I don't know, I kind of went through this path where I worked with a chiropractor for a while and I thought I wanted to go to chiropractic school. So I took all these prereqs and applied to schools and then so there's, this was always a little something that didn't feel quite right with everything. Okay. Like I just, just for some reason I was hesitant to, to finally commit to going. Um, I'd thought about physical therapy. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I thought about going to like naturopathic doctor school. And then I don't know, I came across OT one day and I kind of read about it. And then I also, my friend, um, who you had on your podcast, Carlin, I had talked to her a little bit about it and I just felt like, you know, this feels like a good fit. Um, so I filled out the application and I got in and for some reason I didn't have, I didn't actually know that much about it at the time. I knew way more about these other careers that I had like dragged my feet going through. Mm-hmm. So something felt like it just connected with me. I think the field to me is very broad. So there's a lot of different areas we can work. Um, and it's also, I like the holistic aspect of it. We really look at, um, people as a whole and how, you know, different things are impacting their lives and how we can get them back to doing what they want to do. Um, so I really liked that about it. I think with my personality too, I get bored really easily. And I liked that there's just, we have a large scope of practice. And so there's like a lot of different areas you can go into. Like I'm kind of dealing with that now where I've been an acute therapist in the hospital as most of my time being a therapist now. And I'm realizing Mm -hmm. that I'm a little bit bored of it. Like I've, I'm ready to learn something new in the field. So trying to remember that, even though I've gone back to performing, um, and doing that, I'm trying to still remember my other part of my life that I need to continue also moving that forward as well. And what kind of after college, what kind of schooling does it require? I did. I don't even know this. Um, so I did a master's program. Uh, currently you can sit for the board exam with a master's, um, pretty soon it will probably move to a doctorate. Okay. Uh, and then at the end of my master's program, we, my, the school, I went to USC and they really strongly encourage us to continue with a clinical doctorate, which is what most of the physical, which what physical therapists have now is a clinical doctorate. Um, okay. just because we kind of are, a, we work very closely in with physical therapy field and our field kind of falls a little bit after them as far as what's required of degrees. I was offered a scholarship to actually do a doctorate at USC. And then, but this, I had this nagging thing behind my mind where I was like, I really want to perform in Cirque. So like I'm already 30, I got to do it now. So I didn't go through with it. And then actually I, um, couple years ago, I got a flyer in the mail for uh, UNLV here, the university here in Las Vegas, uh-huh. um, that they started a post-professional doctorate program. And I thought, okay, I might as well do it now. So I did finish my doctorate just in May. What? Um, yeah. So Teresa, I, know. I didn't know this. Oh my God. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It was quite an experience. It was two years part-time. Yeah. So I'm glad that that's done, but yeah, technically you only need a master's to practice, but the majority of the programs now are doctoral programs. So you basically earned your doctorate during pandemic. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did the second year pretty much during it. You probably make other people feel like they didn't do a lot during the pandemic. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) Although I do like when people are like, I probably should have written a book during the pandemic. I was like, well, I did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like there's so, I had some friends that like they got super fit or they like really were like, so I didn't necessarily feel like that. I mean, but I guess I did these other things. Like I worked full time at a hospital and I finished my doctorate, but there are times I feel like I didn't use that time as wisely as I could have. So I feel like on paper, 
anybody would probably argue with you, but I get where the feeling comes from. Yeah. Because I I feel like we kind of have some similarities in our personality where I'm just like, I got to do a million things. Yes. Yeah. 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 I do a million things or else I'm not happy or else I'm not feeling like I'm using my time well. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you, but, uh, you, you sound, uh, you sound pretty impressive to me, Teresa. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I love that all my friends, like, I love that I'm not like my friends really push me to do better because people like you, you know who my, some of my friends are like, you just want to get better because it's so inspirational to people around you, like what they're yeah. pulling off, you know? Yeah. So I think that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Congratulations. I had no idea. And, uh, when you get a doctorate in occupational therapy, are you writing a dissertation? Um, we have to do like a doctoral project. They call it a doctoral capstone. Okay. Um, so yeah, that was, I spent the last two semesters of my program working on that. Um, and was, was it, was it stressful? Was it, yes. like, what did that, what did that feel like? It was really stressful. Okay. Um, partially because when I started the program, I was performing and I was working part-time as a therapist, but you know, performing, I had my mornings free, which is when my brain works best. So I got to do all my work in the morning. It was not really that big of a deal. And then once I started my doctoral like capstone, I was working full time at the hospital. So, and it was during COVID. So it would just, I was exhausted at the end of the day. And then I'd have to come home and try to do my work. And it was really rough. Um, so yeah, the last two semesters were definitely really hard. I'm very glad I did it now, but yeah, during it, I was like, maybe I should just drop out. <laughs> and do you have, now that you have this doctorate, let's just say, you know, are, are you, I'm thinking that you're going to swim for O and then you'll work part-time, but you know, in the future, future, does that mean you can, you know, what does that allow you to do that you couldn't do before? Or does it just open a bunch of doors? Um, so the main reason I did it is I knew at some point I'd want to teach and to be hired at a university, you generally need a doctorate. Uh, yeah, um, okay. so that was kind of my underlying reason of doing it. I just, I looked at my work I do at the hospital uh, and I realized like, I can't do this when I'm, I mean, I guess I can when I'm 60, but I don't want to be having to lift like heavy patients. And it's just hard. It's hard to be on your feet all day long. Like it didn't seem to me like a, a area I could do long term. So I felt like naturally I'd, at some point I'd want to move into teaching. So that's right. kind of why I did it. Um, and so I, and, I mean, it did pay off. I am teaching a class right now at the university where I just did my program. Um, so, you know, thankfully our program director, we were the first class to go through this program. So she allowed both me and my classmate to, um, start teaching there. So I'll have that experience on my resume now, which is good, but yeah, that wasn't the main thing. I think the other really benefits to doing the doctorate is I know at some point I would love to start my own practice in some way. I don't exactly know what area that would be. And I think just, you know, it's kind of just a status thing, but I think to, for your clients to know that you went through that extra schooling and you have that behind Mm -hmm. your name, I think it just gives you a little more, um, credibility if you're starting your own practice. And I guess also a third reason is that if I ever wanted to go up, you know, against a job, say I wanted to be a rehab manager, um, generally we're going up against physical therapists, which are all doctorates. So I just felt like I wanted to be a little more on the even playing field with kind of our counterparts. Teresa, I feel like 
in another life, you would have been very accepted by my Chinese parents. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I really feel like you would have fit in really good with my cousins (laughs) who were like really smart and (laughs) made me look bad because all I wanted to do was dance. Um, I'm laughing because the more I do podcasting, what I'm learning is a lot of the preconceived notions I had about how I was raised is completely, is completely wrong. Like I see the same, the same things in other families and in other people. And it has nothing to do with people's background. It has nothing to do with being Asian. Cause I always think to myself, like I'm from a Chinese household. That's why, you know, like I have this work ethic that just is ingrained in me and it's almost obsessive. Yeah. And um, my parents don't know how to communicate. What I've learned is people don't know how to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. And and the younger generation is better than the older generation, but we all still struggle. Yeah. It's so interesting. And so you got your doctorate in a pandemic. You're back to swimming for, oh, except you just have this little bump in the road with your broken foot and you're already teaching at the school that you got your doctorate. I'm very impressed. hundred percent. Thank you. Thank you. I, I didn't know all this. You know, this is another, also another way that I really um, am able to like, like just connect with my friends again. Yeah. Cause I, I wouldn't have known this about you. Yeah. Yeah. You I, know? Was quiet. I was kind of quiet about it. I don't know. I was just trucking away trying to, <laughs> trying to get it well, done. Well, I mean, that makes sense. I don't like talking about things until I finish them either, because what yeah. if I never get around to finishing it or especially the project of like writing a book or making a course. It's like, if you don't finish it, then it's like you didn't do anything Yeah, because it's not the finished product isn't there. So I, I yeah. get that. Cause I feel that way. I feel that way too. Sometimes with jobs, I won't announce them until I'm paid for them. Not even I shot it already. Yeah. But like, awesome. I already got paid. It's already playing somewhere. And then I'll talk about it because yeah. you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. So yeah, it's true. So Teresa, I mean, you have all this time in your hands. Why aren't you back in the air? Oh, <laughs> I know, I know. I'm kidding. So, I know, you know, it's it's hard. This whole last year, I kept being like, okay, next month, I'm really going to get back into my aerial training because I've kind of taken a bit of a break this last year. Um, so, you know, it's hard because the gyms were closed and I don't have a rig. So I kind of allowed myself that time for a while. And then the gyms opened and I... I did make myself, I'd make myself go back once a week for a little while. And then I can't remember what, Oh, and then I was trying to finish my doctorate and I was like, Oh, it's too crazy. I got to let it go again. So <laughs> my, my plan, once I got reintegrated back into the show was to like, try to pick up my training again. So I really, I do miss train. Um, and I miss like having, I think between my aerial training and swimming, I feel like it gives me a really good, um, kind of muscle base to prevent injuries. Like, Besides yeah. breaking my foot, I've, I was in the red for four and a half years and then in O and I've never once been injured. So, um, you know, well, I do, you also know a lot. Yeah. I help. I think that probably is very helpful. Yeah. But. And I, so I, I try to make an effort to really keep into those things, but yeah, I kind of just took, a, I let myself just take a break this last year from training, but, um, I would definitely like to get back into it. I, uh, too, a little bit over COVID when I was training, I was training alone and I don't really like to train alone. So, um, now that some of my friends are back to training, I think once I'm ready to, I'll have people to train with again. So yeah, I get, I get a little nervous. So I didn't really like to train on my own. And it, it's crazy. Like it's cause you know, you, 
in your head, it's muscle memory. So you're like, Oh, I used to be able to do this. But then if your yeah. strength isn't there, like it was a little scary for me. Cause I was like, I don't quite know where my strength level is right now. Like, I remember where it used to be. And in my head, it's still there, but it's not physically. So yeah, um, I think just having and a sometimes friend there. You, if you hadn't done, done it in a while, it's really helpful to look to your friend on the ground and be like, Hey, I did that right. Didn't I? Totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, that really does help. And from my experience, when I visit Vegas, even more than LA, it seems like you go to LVCC or you go to a whatever it's called. Yeah. I don't remember the acronyms, but like everybody is there. Yeah. And it's so fun to train because it's like, you know, it's like kind of like a social hour and then you bring your coffee. Yeah. And then you train a little bit and yep. then you talk to people and they, they brought their kid. It's so fun um, every time I train in Vegas. Yeah. Yeah, there is a really good group here. There's definitely, and I know, like, as soon as I'm ready to be like, okay, I want to train again, I know I have friends that would be like, yeah, come along. Um, but yeah, there's yeah. A, there is a bit of an intimidation aspect too, I think, because like everyone is really good, and you worry like, oh, so are they going to judge me? But that's when I try to just, I'm like, you know, I ultimately like I do all these things for fun and for fitness and to stay fit as I get older and for the physical challenge. So to me, I try to remember like, it doesn't really matter right now what I look like. I'm, so <laughs> I try to remember that when I do things. For me, I'm not as strong right now as I was because some like momming things and pregnancy things, like my lower abs still like, it's kind of a fight. Like I have to work really hard to like maintain a certain amount of strength. So that feels crazy when I'm, you know, with my students and they're all stronger than me. Yeah. But at the same time, I know, I know why that is. And, you know, you just kind of fight the good fight. I'm also... <laughs> Teresa, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. <laughs> you are. You're still a spring chicken. <laughs> I think to myself, I'm like, oh. at some point, I'm going to have to let it in my head that that isn't a part of the equation, you know? Yeah. Because uh, as of right now, I'm like, oh, no, no, age isn't a factor. Yeah. And then at some point, I'm going to be like, okay, age is a factor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I go I go through those struggles too where I'm like no fight fight it but I, I definitely especially this last year I feel like I've lost a lot of flexibility but I think I can get it back but yeah I, I know what you mean like there are I definitely as I've gotten older I'm not I think when I first learned aerial I was still pretty like I would try anything and um I liked the challenge and I never like say no to one of the challenges but now as uh-huh. I'm older like especially when I train with Sarah and, or when, uh, it's been a while but she tells me that I know how to go just high enough to not hit the floor because I don't like to go very high anymore. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I do. I know how to just go just high enough to end like just a couple inches off the oh floor. Oh my God. <laughs> to me, that's like so funny because I'm like, the floor is not your friend in this particular case. So it's like, I just, I'm not as risky anymore. I, I you know, I'm like, I'm okay not trying that trick, but Again, since I've lived in Vegas, I haven't had, like, I think I really thrive off being in a classroom environment and having mm. other people that are also learning along with me. So yeah. I think that helps. And I haven't really had that since I've been in Vegas. Like, I have my friends I train with, but um, I think I thrive in a group environment. So I kind of also just accepted that, you know, right now that's not part of my aerial training. But, you know, at some point, maybe when I leave Cirque and I have more time to focus on that, like, I'll get in a classroom environment or a studio environment again and um, be able to focus more on those skills again. Yeah. I love being in a classroom environment, even for my own training, you know, yeah. because I'm making them all do all the things. So then I do all the things. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that if I didn't do that, I don't know if I would do it on my own so much. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. So Teresa, you have successfully broken the seal on your podcast experience. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Wait, am I wrong? Is this not your first podcast? No, no, it is. Oh my God. And it was easy, right? Well, yeah, because you make it easy. Well, (laughs) I have a special skill that I didn't know that I had, but I guess I did because I've always been good at talking on the phone with my girlfriends. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's all this is. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I had a blast. I have to remind my mom. I'll be like, remember when you told me to get off the phone so much? Yeah. (laughs) That skill set actually did do something. Uh Um, Teresa, uh, you you are pretty impressive. And I'm really glad that we got to catch up because I didn't know all these things. And uh, I I guess if your friends listen to it, maybe they'll be like, hey, I didn't know those things either. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed enjoyed chatting and thanks for listening to my my random stories. Thank you so much to Teresa for joining me today. You can find her on Instagram at Teresa underscore Licardo. If you go to my show notes, I've actually got a new gift for you guys. Go ahead and click there. I have curated a wrap your head around silks, aerialist top picks. I went through Amazon and I picked the aerial gear that I use, that I've tested, that I've tried, and I put it all in one really easy list that if you're looking for a span set or if you're looking for the right pair of tights, if you're looking for the right tape for your lira or you know, the books that I like as references, then you'll find them there. They're all my picks. So go to the show notes and uh, check that out. Thanks so much to Asa Watkins for music and post-production. And if you would honor me with a five-star rating and a review anywhere you get your podcast, it really helps our community find this podcast. And thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to the Expecting Aerialist podcast.